Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you ever wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail? Books and movies in recent years may have ignited that spark inside you. After all, the trail is the longest continuously marked footpath in the world. It's roughly 2,190 miles long, and it's right here along the East Coast. I don't want to reach for metaphors, but no reach, Bryson, reach. Well, they say the Appalachian Trail is like life. You don't know what's ahead, you don't know what's going to happen next, but you give it your best shot. Best So on that, on that note, we, we go. We go. That's Robert Redford as Bill Bryson and Nick Nolte as Stephen Katz in the film adaptation of Bill Bryson's popular book, A Walk in the Woods. Living in New England, it's probably hard not knowing at least one person who's attempted to hike the entire Appalachian Trail, or AT as it's called. Maybe you're one of the 3,000 people annually who do the entire trail or through hike from Georgia to Maine. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our Facebook and, and our Twitter page at Where We Live. Email where we live at WMPR.org. And before we talk about why people are interested in hiking the AT, we wanted to take a look back at hiking culture in the country. Joining me from the studios of WRTI in Philadelphia is Silas Chamberlain. Silas, welcome to Where We Live. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about your book, uh, tell us how you were turned on to hiking and and uh, work, working and living in the woods at times. Well, I grew up in central Pennsylvania in a pretty rural part of York County, and we were able to just pretty much walk out our back door and into the woods and didn't rely on trails, just relied on lots of landowners who were willing to let people walk through their property. And uh, and and my parents would take me camping into the Appalachian Trail, which runs through parts of central Pennsylvania. So I always had a, a love for hiking and being outdoors, but it really put it in perspective when I moved to Philadelphia to go to Temple University for my undergraduate degree and realized that, you know, being away from places like that where you can just walk out your door uh, and go hiking um, really makes those places seem even more valuable. And so as an undergraduate at Temple, I was looking for summer work and happened to stumble upon the Adirondack Mountain Club's prof professional trail crew. And I went up to the Adirondacks and worked for a summer on trails uh, in the backcountry for five days at a time and really just was exposed to this whole other world of hiking clubs that had thousands of members and had really long histories and it took me a couple years to to sort of return to that idea of of really being interested in that and wanting to look into it deeper, uh, but had the opportunity to do that in graduate school. And so that ended up being a lot of the research I did, looking back at those clubs and, and everything they had contributed over the years. And what did you uh, do when you were working in the club with all of these young men, I think some women too? Oh, sure, yep. It was, a, it was men and women. Uh, we did footpath uh, work. So in some cases it was blazing new trails, but more often than not, it was putting in the kinds of things that anybody would see when they're out hiking, like water bars that direct water off the trail, clearing trees that would fall down, 
uh, building little staircases that you see out of rocks, and pretty much trying to create something that blended into the wilderness setting of the Adirondacks, uh, but also allowed those trails to withstand lots and lots of people coming and using them in all the seasons. Your book on the trail comes out, I believe, uh, in the fall, but I was able to see a PDF version before the show and read some of it, and and there's a great picture of you uh, with this club. (laughs) A lot of (laughs) testosterone there, huh? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a really a a pretty remarkable culture within the professional trail club, and there's a few professional crews around the country that work on trails, and they all tend to develop this culture that really celebrates – work with hand tools and axes and it's because it's really a a dying art in a lot of ways Um, and in the Adirondacks where you can't use power equipment the idea of relying on rock bars and axes is uh, really important. Uh, You write in On the Trail that the book's an attempt to explain how someone could hike regularly in the late 20th century and yet uh, we're so ignorant of the vibrant culture of organized hiking in the U.S. So take us back um, in, to the history of hiking in the U.S. When did we see the rise and, I guess, the decline of hiking culture? Well, we really saw the emergence of people being interested in walking in the early 19th century in urban areas among elites who wanted to get out of cities and experience natural areas Um and, and some of the earliest clubs that are founded, like the Appalachian Mountain Club in 1876, were really among people who we would think of as the leading citizens of society, doctors and engineers, professors. Uh, and, and that begins to change over time. In the early 20th century, we see these clubs be co- become a little more democratic. They're founded outside of major cities. Uh, and they really start to proliferate. So there's even in you know pen- places like Pennsylvania, New York, and New England are really the centers of these clubs. And in some of uh, in the early 20th century, some of these states have 10, a dozen, 20 different hiking clubs founded in some of their major cities. They tend to resemble the larger clubs like the Sierra Club and the Appalachian Mountain Club, but they also take on their own their own form and bring in uh, you know people that from what we would think of as the growing middle class, people who had expanded amount of leisure time, uh, disposable income, and a growing appreciation for nature who really are seeking out time uh, that they can get away from their desk jobs and recreate uh, some of the frontier spirit that at that time Americans were really concerned was being lost. How did, uh, you know, when we look at the time after World War II, I mean, how did military culture impact uh, hiking and, and the supplies that people took with them uh, when they went into the woods? Well, this is something I really struggled with because when I was doing my research, because anecdotally I had heard from lots of people that World War II was a boon to hiking because it exposed people to the outdoors and it, it gave lots of American men experiences with long-distance walking. But when I really started to dig down deep into that, I I found a lot of recollections from people that were returning from war and saying, you know, I just spent a lot of time outside walking long distances with really heavy pack. I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, So what I found was really World War II's major contribution is all the the surplus materials that are pouring back into the country. There's there's new uh, fabrics like nylon. There's freeze-dried foods. And these are incorporated into all sorts of outing pro, um, 
outing products. And then there's also just the materials of war, like backpacks and cots and cooking kits that previously had been sort of specialty products and now could be found in magazines, uh, could be found for sale in, in local stores. And hikers take advantage of those products right away in lessening their loads that they have in the backcountry and making their time there more comfortable. Uh, you mentioned that you were working in college um, with this Adirondack Mountain Club, doing a lot of that hard work that we take for granted. So most of us, when we think, oh, it's the weekend, let's go out, enjoy the woods, let's do some trails with our family and friends, the trails are there. We're not maintaining them. So there's definitely a shift from working and uh, being part of that culture and doing the work to just expecting that they're there and we should be able to recreate whenever we wanted to. Can you talk about how that there was that uh, increase and then how the the shift in thinking about hiking changed sure this is this is a central tension that I find in my research and I talk about a lot in the book because from the period of the early 19th century to really the 1960s and early 1970s hiking meant being a member of a club and if you're a member of a club it meant that you would spend at least a day a week thinking about the club and spending time with the club during outings You would be out cutting new trail or maintaining existing trails. You'd be hosting speaking events and showing slideshows to community groups. It was really a defining part of your life if you were a hiker. But in the 1960s and 1970s, that begins to change. There's millions of people that begin hiking for the first time, but most of those people are not becoming members of clubs. They are choosing to hike on on their own or with their families. And there's a number of reasons why that happens. In part, it's they can because they now have this new equipment that's lightweight. There's lots of information available about where to hike and how to hike. There's easy access to maps. Uh, And there's high rates of personal automobile ownership that allow you to get out and on your own. Also, as the Appalachian Trail grows in importance and the the idea of the solo through hiker or the backpacker that's self-reliance really starts to take off, people really start disassociating hiking with something that you do as a large group. They think of it as a personal therapeutic experience that you would do alone in the woods and that you would gain something individually out of it. But as a result, all those millions of people who are pursuing that sort of self-reliance in the woods are not joining clubs and therefore not necessarily contributing to trail building or the day-to-day organizational work that a hiking club has to do to uh, operate at a high level. And so I argue there's this disconnect where um, these tens of millions of people who are hiking for the first time do come to see trails as as just a uh, something that's provided to them. They may be willing to send in a membership fee periodically, or write to a legislator in support of a trail, but very few end up becoming engaged to the level that we had seen for the previous 100 years. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking to author Silas Chamberlain. His book, On the Trail, The History of American Hiking, comes out this October. He's joining us from the studios of WRTI in Philadelphia. Can we talk a little bit more, Silas, about that tension uh, in your book? There is a great excerpt. I can't remember the name of the hiker, but I believe it was in either the 60s or 70s where um, there's a rainstorm, and, and he sees a young group of men. They had a fire going, and when it started to downpour, they left the fire. They didn't bother to put it out. They left all their garbage. 
and it just incensed this uh, this hiker. And he was like, you know, how are we going to train these newbies, so to speak, to value um, not the, just the trail but the environment um, and to use it responsibly? Right, and this is this is one of this. It's a really interesting excerpt for a number of reasons. Uh, that's actually someone talking about why the magazine Backpacker Magazine was first published in the '60s, uh, and the editors of of Backpacker and the early contributors thought of that magazine as a way to spread this idea of what we now know as leave no trace hiking. And they thought that if we can get the people who are most into hiking and backpacking to adopt these same principles of not building large fires, of packing out whatever you pack in, of even really pragmatic things like using going to the bathroom in the woods uh, appropriately, if we can teach uh, sort of these ambassadors of hiking and backpacking to follow these principles, then all these people who are coming out and using the trail might also adopt them. The irony, from my perspective, is that they're trying to spread uh, leave-no-trace principles, but a lot of the um, ideas around that movement end up contributing to the idea that you should be hiking alone because hiking in large groups obviously has a larger environmental impact. So Backpacker Magazine and leave-no-trace principles in a lot of ways end up contributing uh, and accelerating the process that I just described of disassociating from clubs. For example, for much of the Sierra Club's history, their large outings each year were a chance to bring in new members. They'd be several weeks long. They would consume thousands of pounds of food. They were really um, amazing journeys, but also very intense when it came to environmental impact. And so as the Leave No Trace movement really starts to pick up, the Sierra Club decides that they're going to limit the size of their outings to relatively small groups. And so you even see well-established clubs start to change uh, and move away from these large group outings because they're seeing the impact of these millions of people coming to the woods for the first time. Um, We talked a little bit about um, the shift from producer hikers, the people that are helping maintain uh, these trails that we enjoy, to the consumer hiker culture where uh, we expect it um, because, you know, we may pay taxes and we just assume, oh, the government will take care of it. Um, But I was reading, I think, in the book, it was the the National Trails System Act of 68 where you really started to see that organized hiking decline. Yeah, that's when you really see the federal government become involved for the first time in trail policy on a national level. Prior to that, the the National Park Service and the Forest Service were obviously engaged in building trails and maintaining trails on their land. But the National Trail System Act of 1968 sets up a system for trails that go well beyond public lands, like the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail, the Continental Divide. So there's these the system of great national scenic trails that the act lays out and provides some funding for. But it also puts in place a system of recreational trails and historic trails, which takes into account all the trails that are in actually in communities and aren't necessarily scenic, but provide close to home recreation uh, or preserve historic pathways. Uh, It's the first time that the government puts large amounts of money, tens of millions of dollars into the acquisition of land for trails. But more importantly, it sets up a federal bureaucracy that are are federal people, federal policymakers that every day wake up thinking about the nation's trail network and what can be done to leverage the capacity of state agencies to build those trails and protect them. At the time, and I think even today, uh, that act is celebrated 
as a, as a major step forward, a sign that the hiking community had really risen to uh, a high level of prominence and was able to craft federal policy. Uh, in subsequent years, it's been it's a little more ambiguous what the impact of the act has been, only because it's sort of valued those long distance scenic trails and put a lot of money behind them but has in some ways left out our local trails, which is where most hikers get their outdoor experiences. I'm speaking with Silas Chamberlain, author of On the Trail, The History of American Hiking. When we come back from a short break, we're going to find out more about what compels people to go into the woods and talk to some residents who've actually hiked the AT and the PCT. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Imagine, if you would, a community that stretches more than 2,000 miles from Georgia to Maine, where you can literally walk almost the entirety of the East Coast in about six months or less. Well, it's no dream, thanks to the dedicated volunteers who've created and continue to steward the wonder that is the Appalachian Trail. That's an excerpt written by Olivia Acosta on the blog for the Appalachian Trail Conservancy. Today, where we live, we're talking about hiking culture. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org, slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We're looking back at the history of hiking with author Silas Chamberlain. His new book, due out in October, is called On the Trail, The History of American Hiking. Have you hiked the entire Appalachian Trail or Pacific Crest Trail? Why do you do it? Join the conversation again, 860-275-7266. I want to go back to you, Silas. Um, you grew up in central Pennsylvania, not far from where the AT passes through the state. Did you spend a lot of time hiking that trail? I We would go there periodically, but that's part of what I find really funny is that we live so close to the Appalachian Trail, but we really didn't go there a <laughs> lot. We, like I said at the at the onset, that we would we didn't really look for trails for hiking. We looked for open space uh, that was just the open woods. Maybe walk along the banks of a creek or, or up a um, up a small stream, and we would go to the Appalachian Trail to see uh, almost like a, a spectacle. See people that were doing long distance hiking with backpacks, and so that was a world that was sort of foreign to me. And, uh, and to be honest, I haven't hiked, I've hiked almost the whole Appalachian Trail in Pennsylvania, but not uh, any beyond that. And so I don't consider myself a through hiker in any sense, uh, but I think I represent the tens of millions of Americans who hike you know, periodically a couple miles here, a couple miles there. Uh, I like to take my daughter out for walks on our local trail network in the Lehigh Valley in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, but I've always been envious of the people who have hiked the Appalachian Trail, but I don't see that in my future. I wanted to um, join now with Sam Ducharme. He's a Connecticut resident and someone who has been a thru-hiker on the AT. Hi, Sam. Welcome to where we live. Well, good morning. So, Sam, why'd you do it? Well, I'm, I, uh, I'm a, as you know, I'm a Connecticut resident, and uh, but I spend a lot of time up in Maine, and, and I've been looking at Katahdin, which is... Uh, the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail, and climbed it several times. And each time I go up there, I see this uh, group of people just almost looking at the sign and, and, and with tears. And it meant so much in talking to them. I uh, kind of got an interest in the trail. Mm-hmm. And once I retired, I, I was a, a state employee with the Department of Corrections. Once I retired, my kids grew, 
and went off into the service. It was time for me to do something big. So uh, that was my something big. It's interesting you said when you retired, because uh, I like to hike a lot with my family, but the idea where I could actually take six months to do the AT, I mean, it seems impossible now with uh, two young ones uh, in the house as well. But um, how did you prepare for uh, the AT? I didn't have much preparation. I uh, I decided in February that I was going to go and uh, do it in March. So I basically went down to REI, bought a backpack, and uh, threw my hammock in it, and got a plane ticket down to Atlanta, and I decided just uh, to walk home. And uh, I figured how hard could it be is just walking, right? <laughs> well, you know, a sense of direction is a good thing, too. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I was in for some uh, some uh, hard lessons. Yeah. Well, tell me, what, what were some of those hard lessons? Well, first of all, down south, you think of uh, Georgia and the mountains down there. You just think, you know, nice rolling mountain. It was pretty rigorous, and I wasn't. A, I'm not a hiker. Uh, I mean, the longest hike I had hiked was literally climbing up and down Mount Katahdin and every now and then. And uh, so, on the second day, when I hit 16 miles, that was officially my longest hike ever, and I wasn't uh, physically prepared for it. So it was pretty strenuous in the beginning until I got uh, into condition and, and hiker hiker shape, they call it. I was looking at some of the facts on the uh, AT Conservancy site, and they say that Virginia is home to the most miles of the AT, about 550. West Virginia has four miles. Maryland and West Virginia are the easiest states to hike. New Hampshire and Maine are the hardest. Um, so how did you, I guess, obviously there were some uh, lessons learned in terms of like stiffness the next day when you, when you walked if you weren't a, a constant hiker. But talk about, like, supplies, and how did you replenish those supplies? Did you go into town a lot, I and mean, what was that like? Yeah, luckily for us, uh, the Appalachian Trail is on the East Coast, which, you know, two-thirds of the population in this country mm-hmm. live close by. So every few days you come out of town, and if you needed supplies, it was an easy uh, easy resupply. The t- towns, we call them trail towns, the towns that are near the trail, uh, they they are pretty well prepared. They, they set up, I mean, they know what to stock and and, the, and really the people in the community are a, a great help they they uh, often pick us up without even us sticking our thumbs out bring us down to walmart to get uh, you know food or socks or whatever you whatever you need so all along the trail there are places where you can come out of that country and go resupply and a lot of hikers uh, have their supplies set up in advance and they have somebody at home that uh, they can now we all have cell phones and we can text them and say, hey, we're going to be in such and such town. You send a box to the post office, and uh, we'll pick it up there. And it's, uh, it's a lot easier than it probably was 15 years ago for the thru-hikers and, and earlier where they didn't have that modern-day convenience. <laughs> also on the phone with us is Denise Horan, a Connecticut resident, also a thru-hiker. So she hiked from, I believe, Georgia all the way up to Maine. Hi, Denise. Welcome to where we live. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm well. So we're hearing from Sam that he didn't really prepare. He just went and <laughs> thought, how hard is it? So how did you, what made you want to go on to the AT, and how did you prepare? Um, well, you know, we all have dreams in life, and when I was 16 years old, I, with my family, did a trip up into the White Mountains, which are just absolutely beautiful, and came across some through hikers and I said to myself, one day... I am going to complete this dream, and I'm going to do this. So ever since I was 16, and I will let you know I'm 55 right now, um, I've always had this dream to complete the trail. 
Um, I have a busy life, um, run a couple businesses with my husband, and um, have three children that are in and out of college, um, high school. But I said, I've got to do it now or else my body is not going to allow me to, to wait till I'm any older. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started training, and I trained for over two and a half years, something much different than Silas. I, I mean, not Silas, than your previous Sam. Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met with two other women and in um, a group of people, and we practiced three times a year. We would go on week-and-a-half-to-week um, trips and just get our legs on the trail. And and they were at different parts of the trail, so I kind of got a little taste of what it was like a little bit down south, the center of the trail, and up north. And I think that training helped me, but you're never fully prepared until you're actually walking day to day. Uh, Silas Chamberlain's on the phone, I'm sorry, in studio from Philly, author of On the Trail, The History of American Hiking. Um, Something that Denise said, Silas, uh, that she was hiking with some other women. In your book, um, with the organized hiking clubs um, in the 20th century, people, these clubs were very welcoming to women, right? Yes, almost from the earliest years. In fact, there's some predecessor clubs to the Appalachian Mountain Club that were formed even earlier in the 19th century. And in some cases, the the leaders of those clubs were exclusively women. Uh, and even when the Appalachian Mountain Clubs formed, there was a small group of men who actually got together and had a meeting to discuss the formation of the club. But at the very first meeting, there was a vote to include women. And we find this in even regional and local hiking clubs across the country, that women were almost always included in club membership, if not the leadership it, uh, itself. There were many clubs, though, that also excluded women. I'm thinking of one uh, not far from where I live now in Reading, Pennsylvania. Their local club uh, specifically said this this club will be limited to the 100 leading men of the city of Reading. And that only changed after a couple of decades of men being exclusively allowed in the club. Uh, You do find, though, some disappointing (laughs) rhetoric, uh, even amongst clubs that allowed men or that allowed men and women about women not even though women were in photos on top of mountains. There were always comments in there that said, well, of course, you know, you had have to be careful to take a woman on this hike because she wouldn't wear the proper clothing or it requires a lot of climbing, uh, even though it had been proven over and over again that women could easily do what the men were doing. How do you feel about that, Denise? So you were hiking with other women. Obviously, I've heard on the AT you see lots of people. Um, as a woman, did you see a lot of women, and did you ever worry about safety? Um, as far as seeing women, absolutely. There are women on the trail. Women my age, probably not. Not as many um, older women, but there were women. Um, through, I'm talking about through hikers, as far as people just hiking on the trail, and there's a lot of recreation, like Sam mentioned and Silas mentioned. Um, the trail does run across a lot of um, cities and towns, so a lot of people utilize the trail, so there were always um, you know, females on the trail. But as far as through hiking, not as many women. I, I'm not sure the exact statistics, but I, I know there were a lot more men that were through hiking than women. Um, but, no, as far as safety, I never felt, you know, threatened or nervous about anything. But having said that, you do have a, an instinct that you, you start to get and, you know, you make good decisions about things. You, you're wise about, you know, where you set up your tent and, 
you know, hanging clothes, for example, making sure you're not hanging pink things outside of your tent and, and um, things like that, maybe not setting your tent up close to a road. Um, you know, you're, you're wise as you hike. Um, I also carried a uh, spot locator, which is a, a satellite um, um, communicator that if something ever happened, I was able to, if there was no cell service, still get out an emergency um, you know, an indication that there was something wrong. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about hiking culture and the history of hiking in the United States. Also, what compels people to take a hike on the Appalachian Trail or Pacific Crest Trail? If you want to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Kirk is on the line from Florida. Kirk, welcome to where we live. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, my name's Kirk, and my wife's name is, is Cindy Sinclair, and we met uh, through hiking uh, on the Appalachian Trail in 1980, and we did a lot of backpacking back then, but we also have done a lot of uh, backpacking recently uh, as sort of therapy. She has early-onset Alzheimer's, um, and uh, it, it helped a little bit, uh, but when she got advanced enough, the long-distance hiking uh, didn't help her, but uh, I was able able to witness how culture has changed from the 1970s, uh, 80s hiking uh, to now. I mean, we, uh, my wife actually was the first woman to hike the Continental Divide Trail. I was the third person to, to get the Triple Crown, which is uh, the AT, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail. But um, back then, in the 70s, 80s, there's like heavy equipment, heavy gear, and because of that, people uh, were out, uh, you know, hiked uh, less miles a day and were out for longer in between towns. And I would say it was sort of more of a uh, living deliberately kind of thing um, back in the 70s and 80s. And when we most recently did it in 2014, uh, which is right at uh, the Pacific Crest Trail, right after Wild came out, uh, it seems to be more like a recreational sport for people now. Um, which, uh, you know, sometimes it was a recreational sport for me as well. But uh, I just, just in general, it seems, because now people have lighter gear, uh, they hike uh, longer miles, and uh, they're out there um, for less time in between the town stops. Also, another big difference I'd like to comment on is uh, back in the 70s, there were no um, uh, guides letting you know where all the trail magic or trail angels are. Um, and uh, now, back back then, it was unexpected. It happened all the time. You know, trail magic happened back then as well, all the time. But it wasn't really uh, as expected as mm -hmm. it is. And I think that has affected the culture a little bit now as well. Well, thank you, Kirk, for your call. Um, and I wanted to actually go back to Sam because we heard, we heard Kirk mention trail magic. So explain to the people who don't know what we're talking about here. What is trail magic? Well, trail magic is a wonderful thing, and the best I can describe it is an unexpected act of kindness from a stranger. So, consider uh, yourself in the backcountry in the Smoky Mountains. You've been in the woods for five days, and you come out of the, the woods, and you're going to cross over a road and head back into the woods on the other side. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, sitting there with a, well, maybe a, like one of those football tents or whatever, uh, a group of people with coolers of cold, ice-cold water, soda, flipping hamburgers, and uh, giving, you know, some fresh fruit. It's just a, a treat. These people come out. 
they're uh, they're either hikers themselves, or past hikers, or they, they're just lovers of people, and and uh, they're giving us this this uh, this special this treat that uh, is remarkably recharging for us. And uh, these acts of kindness go as far as uh, you know picking you up and bringing you to town for uh, you know to go get resupplies or uh, um, any sort of act that that helps you in any way and, and uh, the best part is is it's unexpected um and we call those people trail angels and, mm-hmm. and they are pretty popular i know i just spent the last month on the trail down south paying it back i felt i had a debt to the trail so uh, i just literally got home yesterday and i've been doing trail magic all up and down from about <laughs> pennsylvania maryland all the way down to uh southern virginia and uh kind of one of those things where i get so much help from so many people and i, I felt i i owed a debt and i went back and, and uh, did some trail angling for the uh, for the 2016 through hikers um i was reading that you kept a, a video blog or vlog while you were uh, on the at um can you talk a little bit uh, about that after we play a clip we're going to hear a little bit of that vlog hey everybody day two Long day of hiking, uh, some wise person who never don't walk the trail before said the best way to get in shape for the trail is to walk the trail. Well, with that being said, today was a training day. Uh, climbed about five mountains up and down all day long. Uh, I'm whipped, but uh, it was a beautiful day. Ran into a lot of people. Uh, this part of the mountain, this part of the trail is pretty busy this year. A lot of people heading out so there's not a shortage of people to uh, meet and greet and talk to and see where they're from and uh, it's a lot of fun so far. So you were able to upload those videos to YouTube along the way when you stopped at libraries. Why'd you do it? Well I mentioned earlier I I have uh, grown boys that are in the uh, military and I, I wanted to share this trip with them but they were in different countries and stuff and I figured this would be the best media. So uh, that was a that was an early one that, that uh, I hadn't heard that one in a while, and, and uh, what I didn't expect is that uh, there was such a, a group of people that followed his videos. So what I did is uh, it, it became obvious right in the beginning I wanted to really bring the people. I did my research on the gear, I did my research on the trail, or the trail towns, and got my you know all that stuff. But I was not prepared for the culture of the trail. I was so overwhelmed by how all these people were doing it and how nice and friendly. I mean, remember, I worked in a prison for 21 years, and this was a complete change of uh, culture for me. And uh, so I wanted to bring the people to my kids. And then all the people that were also watching on YouTube really embraced that. And uh, they, I can't even explain how awesome this this viewing audience was. In fact, they, everybody wanted to get involved, and uh, they offered to send me supplies. And I said, no, nah, no, nah, I'm almost 50 years old. I, I got this handled. And uh, one trail angel was taking me to town. We were having a conversation, and she said, no, you have to let these people get involved. They want to be part of it. And, and uh, they ended up, I said, okay, I'll accept the box here or there. And people from all around the country were sending my supplies ahead of me. They were watching where I was, and they'd send me messages saying, hey, when you get to Damascus, there's a box waiting for you here and there. And uh, if they were hikers, they would send incredible boxes full of dehydrated food and 
and everything you need. They already knew. If they were campers, they'd send cans of uh, raviolis and Fig uh, <laughs> Newtons and stuff. And I would always share that with the other hikers in the area. Whoever was happened to be lucky enough to be there, I would share those boxes with the hikers. So it was uh, it was incredible. I mean, over two hundred thousand people watched the videos. And, and, uh, <laughs> who knew? Who knew vlogs were uh, <laughs> so popular? I wanted. It was, yeah. it was a, a niche group, but there were quite a few of them. Yeah. I wanted to turn to Denise. I don't want to um, ignore that you've also hiked the Pacific Crest Trail or the PCT. What was that like, and which trail did you prefer? Well, you know what? I didn't hike the full PCT. Mm -hmm. That's a dream of mine. That's when I retire. I'd like to do that, but I have done a part of it. I've done um, a portion called the John Muir Trail. Um, And the difference to me, and I've hiked out west around um, Lake Tahoe to the Tahoe Rim Trail, um, there is a big difference in the hiking, Um, not as far as the people. Um, Sam's right that the people are amazing, and there is a community out there that is, incredible um you know they're going on this journey uh with you but without you everyone's doing it themselves but you are all have a common thread and that thread is the trail and um differences terrains are definitely different um people tend to think that the mountains are a little shorter in the east meaning they're not up in the higher elevations as they are out west but that doesn't negate the difficulty And as a matter of fact, in some ways, I really felt the AT um, had some more difficult sections than the small portion I did of the PCT um, on the John Muir Trail, um, which was originally designed to be a trail for animals. It was a summer place for animals to graze and go out to to pasture, um, kind of designed by John Muir and the sheep that he tended to. Um, So they are made with better switchbacks. And it's a little more um, easy in the gradient as of, as far as um, ascending an elevation. Although you might be up at 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 feet, where on the Appalachian Trail your highest is going to be a little over 6,000 feet, um, it, it, it still is more difficult, mm-hmm. I, I believe, on the East Coast. Uh, And Denise and Sam, um, we're going to have to go to break soon. But before we let you go, any words of advice to people listening at home who have been thinking about it, maybe haven't done it yet, um, you know, to to trek on the Appalachian Trail? Denise, you go first. Okay. Um, Well, like I said, I, I accomplished a dream that I had since I was 16 years old and a huge busy time in my life. Fortunately, I have a husband and family that's very supportive. Um... And if you have a dream and you want to go after it, I, it, anything is possible. And it is a big block of time, but I will repeat, anything is possible. And if it's important to you and you want to make it a through hike, it can be a through hike, but you can certainly do section hikes and complete the trail through sections. So my only advice is if you have a dream, definitely, and if the dream is to hike the Appalachian Trail, Definitely make it happen because life is very short. And Sam Ducharme, uh, also uh, briefly, words of advice to our listeners. Well, my biggest advice is this. If, you're, if you even have an interest, go try it for a few days. Take a little section hike. You will get the bug. And then when it comes <laughs> Literally time, and you, figuratively. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if you're in Connecticut or Massachusetts. But, uh, and then when you do go out, 
take your time and enjoy it. Just uh, don't put pressure on you for the miles. Just enjoy it. Just like a cruise ship. Everybody goes in the same direction back and forth. But what makes the trip special is the little side excursions you take and uh, enjoying the view and going out and checking out that waterfall that might be a quarter of a mile off the trail. Enjoy it. Take your time. I want to thank Sam Ducharme, a Connecticut resident. He, he hiked the Appalachian Trail. Also, Denise Horan, another resident and through hiker. When we return, we're going to hear more um, from Eric Hammerling, who's the executive director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. I also want to thank Silas Chamberlain, author of On the Trail, The History of American Hiking. It comes out this October. Thank you so much, Silas. Thank you. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up on Monday, most of us know the Miranda rights, even if we've never been arrested. But do you know the story behind our right to remain silent? We'll talk to a local public defender about the 50th anniversary of the landmark Supreme Court decision, Miranda versus Arizona. That's on Monday. Today, where we live, we're focusing on hiking. Part of the hour is spent on the history of footpaths in the U.S. and why people choose to go on month-long hikes on the AT or the PCT. But if you don't have the luxury of taking months off work to hike, good news, Connecticut has plenty of day hikes, too. On the phone with me now is Eric Hammerling, executive director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Hi, Eric. Welcome to Where We Live. Good morning, Lucy. So first off, tell us a little bit about the uh, part of the AT that actually goes through Connecticut. Sure. There's about 56 miles of the Appalachian Trail that goes through the northwest part of Connecticut uh, through the uh, Housatonic Valley. It actually crosses the Housatonic River a couple times. Um, And as it turns out, uh, that section of trail used to be uh, one of the blue blazed hiking trails that was um, originally blazed by one of the um, the members of uh, CFPA's uh, the Trails Committee, uh, Ned Anderson, who in 1929 uh, to 32 was uh, taking care of those trails and keeping them blazed. Not sure if you heard uh, earlier in the show we were talking to author Silas Chamberlain. He wrote the book On the Trail, The History of American Hiking. That book comes out this fall. But he was giving us a little bit of a history lesson on hiking and this shift from uh, producer hikers, so the clubs that actually work to maintain the trails, uh, to what we have today, more of the consumer hiking culture. Um, How does uh, your organization depend on volunteers to keep the Connecticut trails in good shape? Yeah, well, I guess I would draw a parallel to uh, NPR, in fact. Um, you know, you, I've heard often on uh, this station that only one in ten uh, listeners are actually supporters of NPR, and, and we would say, you know, similarly, uh, far fewer probably than one in ten people who are uh, using the trails of Connecticut actually are supporters of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. We have amazing volunteers who uh, spend over 20,000 hours every year maintaining uh, over 900 miles of blue blazed hiking trails. So, um, and they are in all parts of the state, uh, and that's a critical piece of that experience. But most people don't know um, that there are people who are not uh, the government who are maintaining these trails. They're volunteers for the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Speaking of government, um, in recent years, we've actually seen, you know, the the fees at our state parks increasing. So this, you know, this recreation tax so that we want to be outside and um, but not often can the state put that money investment back into our system here. 
that's very true. And, you know, most of the um, the trails, actually the beautiful thing about the Blue Blazed hiking trails is that they are free. Uh, and, in fact, if you, uh, even if it's a trail that happens to be in a state park that has an admission fee, if you walk in, uh, you don't have to pay. That's only a, a fee for people who drive in. So I, I guess I would encourage people, if you're able to walk, um, please take advantage of that and enjoy the parks on foot. So we have a few minutes, uh, Eric. Can you recommend to our listeners some of the the trails that people should be uh, hiking um, and some of the new trails that are throughout the state? Sure. Well, one thing that, you know, obviously the Appalachian Trail is so well known because it was the first national scenic trail and there are only 11 national scenic trails in the United States. Um, but the newest national scenic trail also uh, has a, a very important role in Connecticut and in Massachusetts and that's the New England Trail, which is uh, a combination of uh, some trails that people may be more familiar with, like the Metacomet, the Matabesit, uh, the Monadnock Trail up, up in Massachusetts. And, um, you know, th- those are, um, you know, incredible resources. I-, I would say if someone's looking for either a through hike, uh, like on the Appalachian Trail, um, on the New England Trail, which is about 215 miles long, that would take you from... Uh, Guilford, right at Long Island Sound, all the way up to the Massachusetts, uh, New Hampshire border, it would take you about two to three weeks, depending on the the speed that you're going at. And it's an incredibly beautiful resource um, that we hope people will take advantage of. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, your organization is located in Middlefield, right, on Route 66? Correct. And so aren't there some trails behind your building that people should be checking out? Yes, actually, that's um, those are the newest uh, trails within the Blue Blazed Hiking uh, Trail system, which, as I mentioned before, it's over 900 miles of trail. But right behind our headquarters here in Middlefield, um, we have a uh, we hold a conservation easement on about 250 acres of forest, and there's uh, about three miles of trail that uh, go through there. It's a beautiful loop, a nice way to get away from it all. And if you looked at an overhead uh, view of the Middletown area, you would see this kind of special place of green, and that's where it's it's wonderful for people to go. What are some of your favorite trails? Well, I, I love going for walks with my son, um, and so and I live in West Hartford, so I'm a little bit partial to the um, Greater Hartford area trails, so I, I would typically go to places like um, Talcott Mountain uh, and walk up to Hubline Tower and have the beautiful views of the Farmington Valley. Also love going to the trails up in uh, People's Forest and uh, American Legion uh, State State Forest, uh, which give you incredible views of the, again of the Farmington River. And um, but you know if you go around the state, you know, we have people who live close to the Tunksis Trail, to the Shinipsit Trail, to the uh, you know Quinnipiac and Regicides Trail, and that's also you know one of my favorites is kind of the views from the Regicides Trail, which is. Uh, down in New Haven um, of Long Island Sound are absolutely gorgeous. Um, and I, I would definitely encourage people to find a walk near them. Uh, the easiest way to do that is to go to our website, um, which is ctwoodlands.org, and there's an interactive trails map there where you can see uh, where the trails are, how to get driving directions to them, uh, even where to park. Um, and it's a 
best place to get started uh, on your walk. Eric, just a couple more minutes before we have to close, but you made a good point that you would go hiking with your son. That's something that uh, my husband and I love to do with our our son when he was just a a toddler, throwing him in that Kelty backpack and hitting the the trails. Um, What are some ways that you can get kids involved, um, you know, not just in pockets of communities, but throughout the state um, to be an interest to have an interest in hiking? Yeah, well, as you know, one of the um, issues that a lot of young people are are suffering from is, you know, obesity and a lack of, um, you know, they're more addicted to, uh, you know, video games and electronics and, you know, those things that make it so easy to just stay indoors. Uh, But there's more and more information about uh, the benefits to health. Um, to uh, young people of getting outdoors. For example, uh, for people who have uh, ADHD, they find that they have higher levels of focus uh, when they are uh, in the outdoors. Uh, People's blood pressure goes down when they're in the outdoors. There are lower levels of obesity amongst people who are walking outdoors. Um, And even a picture of the outdoors um, can make a difference in terms of uh, your health. So there have been studies on people in hospitals who are recovering from injuries, just having a picture of a beautiful trail or, or the woods can help their recovery time uh, be, be lower. So I, I would say because of some of the health benefits, uh, it, you know, it, it's really important to get those kids outside. Sometimes you have to use those things that they're very familiar with. So there are ways to, for example, um, go on a little treasure hunt, uh, you know, either letterboxing or geocaching, um, by using your phone uh, or your GPS to find something in the woods. That sometimes, if someone is really attached to their electronics, is a good way to get them excited about the outdoors. I want to thank Eric Hammerling, Executive Director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. We'll have those links that he mentioned on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lucy. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. You can continue this conversation again on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thank God it's the weekend. Let's go take a hike.